Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We do something that may strike you as a bit unpresbyterian, but uh, I've already done a little unorthodoxy with the order of the vows, so this is establishing a precedent. I'm going to ask you to talk back to the pastor for a moment, because I want to test you and see whether or not my theory is correct. I believe that if I start the quotation, you will be able to finish the line. So I just want to find out whether or not this is true. So I'm going to say the first part, and then we'll see if you're able to say the the second part. So choose you this day... Oh, that was pretty good. That was louder than I expected it to be. Uh, Let's try it again, though. Choose you this day. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Famous stuff. Probably the most famous incident in the book of Joshua has to be the walls of Jericho falling down. But the most famous quotation, the most famous line has to be our text from Joshua 24 where Joshua doesn't just give some final words to Israel, but he gives them a charge. He preaches to these people. He puts them on the spot. And he says, you've got to choose who you're going to serve. And then he lets them know that for him, for his house, they will serve the Lord. And one of the pleasures of of reading old books is coming across these familiar quotations. I was reading through a friend's manuscript and he was writing about uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. And I was shocked how many famous lines come from Julius Caesar. Things that that now are are commonplace, just stuff we say. And it actually, this guy Shakespeare, he made this up and he put it in a play. But the funny thing is, as you come across those lines in their context, um, they don't always mean what you've always assumed that they do. Sometimes the the meaning changes for you when you realize the original uh, context in which the words were spoken. You remember in uh, the film The Princess Bride, his famous words after after, uh, the villain says, inconceivable one too many times, he's challenged by Inigo Montoya, who says, you keep using that word, I won't get the accent right, but he says, "Uh, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And I think in Joshua 24, with the verses we're looking at here, uh, I want to be a little Inigo Montoya on you and say, I, I do not think it means what you think it means. The words that Joshua speaks here are such famous words. I mean, they glow off of the page when you're reading Joshua 24 and, and you're going through line by line, you're getting his, his sort of history lesson, and then suddenly you get here and you realize, oh, some famous words are coming up, right? You can, can feel the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up, a little bit of a tingle of recognition as the words come in. But we don't always understand the point that Joshua is making when he speaks these words. Choose you this day doesn't mean what you think it means. Choose you this day is not a motivational speech. When you think of those words and you picture the kind of scene in which Joshua must speak the words, he's not just motivating 
the people. He's not just trying to get them fired up for action. Joshua is not their coach, giving them the pep talk that they need in order to go out and live the way that they should. You can see this when you read the words in their context. You don't even need the full context, but just the text that we have before us, verses 14 and 15. Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's not just trying to get them fired up. As he talks about this question of of who they will serve and urges them to choose who will they serve, Joshua actually spends a lot more time talking about the consequences of failure than he does firing people up for success. In fact, at one point, not far after our text in verse 19, Joshua actually says, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. It's not very inspirational. If your halftime speech for your team when they're a few points down but could still win this thing is basically you cannot possibly win because the enemy is all-powerful, I mean, don't expect the team to rally. Don't expect people to get fired up. It's not inspirational. But Joshua's not trying to inspire them. Joshua's not worried that that as he leaves Israel, as he succumbs to death, that they're not going to be fired up enough. And so he needs to give them some words that will always keep them motivated. His concerns are different than that. Choose you this day is not a motivational speech. Choose you this day is also not an altar call. It's not an altar call. It sounds that way. It gives the impression that Joshua is like preaching a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, he's saying it's time for you to choose. Now you need to choose who you're going to believe in. You need to put your faith in God. Choose God. Repent of your sins and turn. Put your faith in the true God so that you can be saved. It sounds like that's the kind of thing he's trying to do, that he's giving them a kind of call to salvation. The problem with this, though, is that these people, they're already saved. He's speaking to the nation of Israel at rest. He's speaking to the tribes of Israel who have entered into the promised land. They are receiving the inheritance that they had been promised, and now he's speaking to them these words. When they answer, they acknowledge this. They say to Joshua, of course we will choose the true God. He is our God. He is our God. Who else would we worship? They affirm that. They already, they already are saved. But if choose you this day is not a motivational speech and it's not an altar call, what is it? What is it? What it is is a covenant renewal. What you see In chapter 24, this final act of Joshua, the final thing the conqueror leads is a church service 
in which the covenant that God has made with Israel is renewed. That's what's going on in chapter 24. There's a back-and-forth dialogue between Joshua and the people. And if you've worshipped with grace long enough, when you read this chapter, you'll recognize what's going on. Joshua, like a minister, declares these words, and the people, like a congregation, answer. Choose the Lord, he says. We will choose the Lord, they say. We have chosen him. Oh, no, no. You can't possibly do that, Joshua says. We will do it, they say. It's a back-and-forth service of worship. There's liturgy in these words. It's the structure of a worship service. But that service, that dialogue, is covenantal in nature. It's subject matter. The structure of it, the reason why the words are spoken, all of it has to do with covenant. At the beginning of the chapter, when Joshua speaks, Joshua gives what I referred to earlier as a history lesson. This takes up from verse 2 all the way through verse 12. And this is essentially recounting God's faithfulness to his people, everything that he's done. Essentially, the history that they've just lived through forms the final act in the story that Joshua now tells. He reminds the people. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and God instructs the people on what he's done. In the course of that history, he touches on the events that we've seen, the way Joshua was called from from, uh, the shadow of Moses to lead the people into the conquest. How before that, Moses conquered the kings across the Jordan and before that led the people out of Egypt and in the course of it parted the Red Sea so that they could be delivered. But how before that, God had called Abraham from far away from the land across the river and brought him to serve the true God. And it all goes back to that relationship, that covenant promise made between God and Abraham. It's like saying the story that is ending now started generations ago, way back then. And the blessings of that promise are enumerated. You'll see this before our text in verse 13 where God voices these words through Joshua. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is an eschatological vision, a description. You live in a land that you did no work to establish. You eat the fruit of vines that you did not plant or tend. All this God has done for you. That's the rest. That's the picture of what was promised and has now been delivered, the blessings. But curses also are enumerated as well. This is in verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So these consequences of disobedience are similar to what we saw in chapter 23 when we talked about the the preaching of the law which promises rest on condition of faithfulness. 
So we have blessings enumerated. We have curses repeated as a warning. And then when it's all said and done, at the very end of the chapter, Joshua does something for the last time in the book of Joshua that we've seen before. He erects a monument. A stone is put up. Specifically, he says to bear witness. This stone of witness, he says, has seen, has heard the words that you've spoken in the presence of God. How You've affirmed his covenant, and the stone will now bear witness against you if you break it. So all of these things, the blessings and the curses, the history of God's activity, even the witness that, that stands there to witness against us, should we break it? All of these are parts of covenant making. The way that these promises in the ancient world are sealed and throughout scripture are sealed, that's what's being done here. This covenant is being renewed. And that's the context in which Joshua is saying, choose you this day who you will serve. Choose you this day reminds you who you are. It reminds you of who you are, first of all, by reminding you what God has done. The history lesson that is given here. Listen to these words. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. So he's going all the way back to the beginnings. I called these idolaters to myself. Abraham, who, who worshipped other gods, I took him. I took him, God says. And I brought him here. And I gave him and his descendants, the patriarchs, this land. And when Jacob and his children left for Egypt and fell into captivity, I brought you out of it and I brought you back here. And then he goes on and gives the details of the conquest. This is history. He's teaching them their own history. And when you teach people their own history, you teach them who they are. We tend to be people who are disconnected to our past, to not know where we've come from. And as a result, there is an identity crisis that we suffer a sense of rootlessness. And you see people struggling to know who they are. The events of today didn't come out of nowhere. The world that we live in didn't suddenly appear. It came from history. And yet, because of our ignorance, we find ourselves looking around asking, how did we get here? How did we get here? How are things suddenly happening the way that they're happening? Well, history answers that question. We look around and we say, who brought us here? How did we get here? History answers that question. You'll never know who you are until you know your history, until you know where you come from and who brought you here. It's funny to see the way that God over time 
has to constantly reintroduce himself. When you hear the story of Abraham, you hear Isaac and Jacob, Moses, Joshua. In each of these instances, there's a lack of continuity from generation to generation. God has to come back down and reestablish things. He has to reintroduce himself and let people know, oh, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm, I'm your God, Moses. I'm actually the God that you serve. That's me. Because they're constantly forgetting. God has to keep reminding them who he is and reminding them who they are. We think we got here on our own. We need to remind ourselves what God has done for us. In the same way that Joshua tells the people their history, we need to know our history. We need to know what God has done for us, not only in the past, but also in the present in our lives, the blessings that he has brought into our lives. We should remember those things. Because we don't remember, when we do look around, it's easy for us to assume that that whatever good is in our lives, it must be something we did ourselves. So we give ourselves the credit, something we could never do if we remembered where it all came from. We think we deserve the credit, but what we need to do is give God the glory. Choose you this day reminds you of who you are by telling that history. Where did we come from? How did we get here? And it reminds you of the blessings and the curses as well. You didn't work for the promise. People of Israel, they enjoyed things they did not work to achieve. Even when they did the action, did the fighting, it was God who fought for them. They enjoyed these wonderful things that we heard about. I gave you land, God says, on which you had not labored, in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. All the good things that you enjoy in life, I gave you, God says. But there are curses as well for unfaithfulness, for disobedience. I already read verse 20, the, the, the short reference to what will happen should they be unfaithful. Earlier in Joshua 8, after the uh, defeat at Ai, the people got the sin out of the camp. They, if you recall, did a covenant renewal service where they were situated on the two mountains and the people shouted back to one another. From one mountain came the, the, the curses and from the other the blessings. It's always important to remember both. Remember the good things God had promised, but also the bad things the bad consequences of unfaithfulness. As we said last time, these warnings, they're fulfilled in the history of the Old Testament. I know a lot of stuff happens in the Old Testament, and maybe it's hard to get your mind around what it's all about, but what it's all about is people being unfaithful to their covenant vows and enduring the consequences The vineyards that they did not plant but now benefit from eventually are ruined. The houses that they did not build but now dwell in eventually collapse. The cities that they did not establish but now inhabit are eventually laid waste because of the unfaithfulness of the people who received the promise. They entered into the rest, but they could not keep the condition of faithfulness. The good news is 
that God promises a restoration that doesn't depend on our faithfulness, our unfaithfulness will not write the final word in our history. They knew this even in the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament minor prophets, who are only minor because they they have short books, not because the things they said weren't major. Amos, the prophet Amos, foresees a time when all the ruin and devastation that has been visited on the people will be reversed. This is how his book ends, with this vision of the restoration of the house of David. In Amos 9, verses 13 through 15, Amos writes these words from the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the final prophetic word of the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament is a history of disobedience and a history of judgment as a result, but that's not the final word. The final word is this. God will come and he will plant his people and they will never be uprooted. And it will not be because of their own faithfulness. It will be because of his faithfulness to them. Choose you this day. It reminds you of the blessings to come and of the fact that we are a community of promise. The promise that Amos sees in the distance is the promise that Jesus Christ is fulfilling. This is the work that Jesus is doing. He is the house of David rebuilt who will usher in all of the good things that Amos saw. James The apostle realized this. The first council of the church recorded in Acts 15. James looks back at the prophecy of Amos and the reality of Gentile salvation. And for people who grew up as Jews believing that salvation was only for ethnic Jews, they suddenly had this huge issue to confront. What do we do with all these Gentiles that the Holy Spirit is working in? And James goes back to Amos and he says, this is what Amos prophesied. This is what he saw, the salvation of the Gentiles. Jesus was already fulfilling the words of Amos and will fulfill all of them in the world to come. The rest of that vision describes the eschatological kingdom that Christ will bring to fruition when he comes again. So the story of God's faithfulness, this history, it also names the people of God. It names the people and it says you are the people of promise. The covenant promises of God don't just lay on the table. The promises of God make a people. They create a community. They bring people together to bear the name of the Lord and you will never know who you are until you know yourself as God's covenant people, people of the promise. 
choose you this day reminds you of who you are. And it also calls you to serve with all your heart. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That word serve, translated serve, as the context suggests, the Hebrew word could be translated just as easily and accurately, worship. Worship. What's meant by serve here is something a little bit more than to wait on someone, to do a good work for them, to do something nice for them, or let me serve you in this way. It includes that, but it includes much, much more than that. This idea of worship, service, whose scope is the whole of life. We have an understanding of worship writ large. Worship in all of life. That every act done for the glory of God is an act of worship. And understanding this does not detract from what we do corporately when we come together as the people in God in worship, but it shows us that what we do here is meant to be a model for all that we do and and shape all that we do. Our chief end, according to the Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a good definition of worship. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To give glory to him and in the giving of that glory to find joy. To find joy in him. To celebrate him. To find and discover our happiness. A euphoria of thanksgiving in contemplating who God is. That's worship. That's what we're being called to. Choose you this day, whom you will worship with all that you are, with everything that you have. Remember Jesus in John 13 gives a new command to his disciples. The new command I give to you, he says, and it's that you love one another. And that this, this love for one another is how people will know that we are his disciples. This is the command that he gives us. And it's interesting to see the context in which he gives that command, speaks those words. So this happens in John 13, immediately after Judas has betrayed him. That Judas, you know, at the table, Jesus says that the one who dips his bread with Jesus is the one who will betray him. That happens And Judas leaves to go and and actually report Jesus. And after he goes, Jesus says these words. This is picking up in John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say, also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So immediately before this command to love, he talks about glory. 
when he sees one of his beloved disciples leaving the room to rat him out to the authorities, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He is anticipating what is about to happen, his death, and recognizing that in his death and in his burial, in his resurrection, he will be lifted up and seated at the right hand of the Father. He will be glorified, and God will be glorified in him, in his actions, in what he has done. Worship. What greater act of worship could we conceive of than the sacrifice of the high priest, Jesus Christ, who offers himself up as an act of worship, an atoning sacrifice. It is the highest act of glorification of the name of God. And after that, he says, just as I've loved you, love one another. Loving God by loving one another is how we glorify God. It's how he is glorifying himself through us. Choose you this day who you will serve. Choose who you will worship in the fullest sense. Who will you glorify? Who will you enjoy forever? We're called to an overflowing, acted-out love of God and of one another. Serve the true God, not the false ones, Joshua says. He holds out possibilities. You could go back. You could serve the gods across the Euphrates that Abraham once served. Oh, you could go to Egypt, and you could serve the gods of that land where we endured our slavery, our captivity. You could worship those gods. Or you could worship the gods of the Canaanites, the people that we've just defeated. Now that God has given us this land, we could just worship the old gods of this land who could not deliver the people who worship them. That could be our God. We could serve those gods. Those are all of the possibilities. It's interesting. There's one possibility that is not enumerated, which is that you could serve nobody, that you could worship nobody. A lot of people think that's what they're doing. A lot of people say to themselves, hey, I'm not going to choose your God or their God or those gods or these gods. I'm not going to worship anybody. I'm just going to be like, like not religious in that way and not worship. The problem is people who say that, they're typically human beings. <laughs> and human beings are made to worship. There's a desire within us. There's a desire within us to glorify, to enjoy, to find outside of ourselves something to revel in, to find meaning in, to assign answers to. And if you take away the true object of those desires, the desires don't go away. You can hide the true God from the people he made, but you can't change the fact that their hearts yearn for him. And if they can't find him, they find something else to put in his place. There is no neutrality. There is no sideline to stand on. You choose you this day who you will serve, the true God or the false. Those are the options. There is no other. There are some who are part of the visible church. We're part of this covenant community outwardly, 
who will go back to serve the gods across the river, who will go back to worship the gods of Egypt, who will worship the gods of this land. The idolatry that we face is not literal in the way that it was back then. I'm not saying people will bow down to wooden idols, but honestly, even the idolatry of, of the old days was not literal in that sense. Nobody believed that they could carve a divine being out of wood. This was an object, a means that they used in order to worship a false god. And we do it still today. We do it constantly. The only difference is the gods we worship, we ourselves acknowledge are powerless. We ourselves acknowledge the gods that we worship are the inventions of our own hands. And yet we worship. Some will turn away. In fact, if it were not for the grace of God, we all would. There's no reason for you to look around and say, well, they've gone back to serve the gods of Egypt. <laughs> I will serve the true God, me and my household, but mm, looks like somebody serving the gods of Canaan. There's no reason to be proud or to boast. We would all do this if not for the grace of God preserving us. The only thing to boast in is God himself. Choose you this day who you will serve. Serve. Worship with your whole self. That's exactly what Jesus did. In John 13, he said, just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, now go in love. It's interesting, there's a difference between the way Jesus speaks to us and the way Joshua does. Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You might think of this as saying something like, do what I do. Follow my example. I'm going to set a good example. I'm going to serve the true God. And if you want to be like me, you should do the same. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will do this. Jesus doesn't say, do what I do. Jesus says, I've done it for you. As I have loved you, now love one another. He hasn't just set an example of love. Through the love that he is acting out, he has freed us in order to love. He's made it possible for us to love one another, to set aside self-interest and seek the good of one another through his love. He's made it possible for us to love. In other words, as good as it is to be rallied by Joshua's cry, choose you this day whom you will serve, and to answer as the people did, we will serve the Lord. We see in the history of those people the weakness, the worm in the apple that made it impossible for them to live up to the words that they had vowed in the presence of God. That standing before the stone of witness, they stood condemned by their own words. That's the history. That's the identity that we as human beings have inherited. That's the law. Rest on condition of faithfulness. But the gospel doesn't leave it there. And the law says, choose you this day whom you will serve. The gospel comes to you and says you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.